You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Very glad we're doing this behind a table um, because I took the advice of uh, the Names Not Numbers organisers and came up the Britain path and I'm covered in mud from there to there. So if we're doing it in rather, one of those rather shishi venues, that it, would look, it would look awful. Um, uh, just first, um, as a quick question, um, of those of you here with degrees, how many of you have a science degree? And how many a humanities or arts degree? Okay. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to give an absolutely clear illustration to my panel of the problems that they face before they even start. Um, if I could invite um, Lucy and Sarah, Jane and Ray to come up and sit with me. Um, and as you do so, as you... I'll, I'll do the introductions now, actually. Um, uh, but first, before I do, um, is to say welcome to the world of axons, myelin, the amygdala, and my favourite, uh, Sarah Jane, courtesy of you, synaptic pruning. Um, uh, my proposition, and the proposition we begin this, is the neuroscience, in a sense, for, the, for most of us, has replaced genomics as the kind of go-to magic of the future. And so on. We all talked about genomics. Those of us who don't have science degrees talked about genomics in the, in the last decade. And neuroscience has replaced it. And for half a decade now, almost any book that I've reviewed about political science or philosophy or ethics and so on has had some kind of reference to neuroscience, to um, uh, this area of the brain lights up, therefore X and Y, which applies to my argument and proves that what I'm saying is true. Um, and some of the books have been interesting. Some of them uh, have annoyed me intensely. I remember one which said that the tendency effectively of middle-aged women to seek affairs was because of a deficiency of estrogen, dopamine and oxycotin. How do you say that word? Oxytocin. Oxytocin, that's right. Um, and if we you know, just kind of big up on all those things, or if their husbands were to make one in every five comments a positive one, then in that case they wouldn't stray and so on. Um, uh, so it's very... But it's also, I mean, that is the kind of, that's, that, that's the kind of nonsense side of it, but it is very kind of, it is actually very common, surprisingly common. Um, and then there is just the bit of us which can be legitimately, it, tremendously excited by what seems to be going on. Um, we've talked several times already in sessions um, about or touched upon issues of mental health, understanding what uh, mental health what we're talking about when we're talking about mental health and what we're talking about the relationship between the physical uh, and the mental, what we might be discovering and so on. And, and indeed, somewhere down the long line, the anatomy of the, of the self. Um, so that's my kind of preamble to the, to the immense interest and spectacular ignorance I have about uh, the general subject. Now, um, this is a stellar panel, and I didn't realise, it's one of the things you get this invitation, you, you ask to chair something, you think, oh yeah, you can chair three people, like that would be great. And then you start doing your work on who they are, and I thought, bloody hell. <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, on my immediate right is um, Professor uh, Ray Dolan, who is in charge of the uh, Wellcome Trust's neuroimagery. 
Um, and therefore, I imagine that's a lot of scanning and, uh, and stuff like imaging. that. Imaging. Neuroimaging. Um, yeah, what would neuroimagery be? I mean, it wasn't completely different. Um, uh, then, immediately on, um, on Ray's right, is Lucy Preble. Lucy Preble is, uh, well, she's, she's one of our best young playwrights, and actually probably one of our best playwrights, young or old. Um, uh, you, people here would have seen Enron, and a lot of you may have seen The Effect, which is uh, uh, Lucy's latest play, which is just, I think this has just come off. And we hope it will go back on again uh, pretty soon. Uh, and we'll ask Lucy to talk a bit about what gave her the idea for the effect and what she was, uh, and how it relates to the discussions that we're having here. And one of the problems of doing notes on your iPad is the thing turns itself off halfway through if you talk for too long. Um, and then on her right is Sarah Jane Blakemore, who's the Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University College of London. I love the fact that I got that whole sentence out. Um, uh, and um, uh, Sarah Jane, you've been specialising in things to do with the adolescent mind and so on, um, arising out of your interest in schizophrenia and the point at which the mind might be described as being, or we think it may be most plastic and so on, or rather you think it may be. So anyway, that's the background, and that is practically all I'm going to say, um, uh, except to push some questions out. And I think the first question, because it's mischievous, is um, uh, firstly to Sarah-Jane and to, to Ray, which is, you'll have looked at the way in which neuroscience has been talked about, some of the books and so on. What about what about that discussion, the way it's presented, has driven you most crazy? <laughs> yeah, either. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think you know, like in any field, um, the hype, um, the exaggeration, the fact that um, people write books about complex subjects and then invoke some explanatory variable, in this case, neuroscience as an answer to complicated questions. But I think it's worth sort of having just a little bit of perspective on where we are with brain science. Up to approximately 150 years ago, until a Spanish neuroscientist called Ramon Cajal um, looked down at, uh, through a microscope, we believed that the brain was some sort of continuous sheath. It was only that point that he realized, or it was realized among neuroscientists, that there were discrete entities called neurons or cells and that these made connections. Another 50 years before we realized, maybe even 100 years, that actually the number of those cells, and we're talking about neurons now, is 100 billion and each of those 100 billions, we're talking about connections here, makes 10,000 connections. Um, now come up to the present time, do we know the entire anatomy of this object? And the answer is we don't. The human brain is not fully mapped even at that level. So to make large-scale sort of jumps in terms of explanatory power of neuroscience, when actually I've said to people recently, we're sort of at the foothills of the Himalayas, you know, we're there is an enormous sort of mountain to climb uh, and we're just at the very beginning. Now that's not to say we don't know an incredible amount, but there are fundamental issues that we haven't even touched upon. So for example, if you just take it as given that the brain is doing some sort of computation, it's taking in information from the surround, sensory information, information about other people, you have to ask a question, what is the 
algorithm or what is the sort of mathematical program that the brain might be running, which is absolutely fundamental to understanding anything about the brain and absolutely fundamental when it comes to understanding problems like mental illness, we still have only scratched the surface and only in a few areas do we have some idea what the fundamental algorithmic functions of the brain are. So what makes me mad is that there isn't a little bit more humility um, about our relative state of ignorance and that in fact, um, I think we're doing a disservice because, you know, there's still an awful lot of basic research to do. If you read some of these books you're referring to, you will think that all problems are solved. Mm. They're not. We've miles to travel. Sergeant. Um Yeah, so how long have you got? Um, I, so I did a degree in psychology. And these days, a lot of psychology degrees have become cognitive neuroscience degrees. The whole terminology has changed, and I think it's just based on fashion. These days, it's sort of not good enough to say, you know, I do psychology. You need to say, I do cognitive neuroscience. And it's really interesting to think about why. I think it's partly because, you know, psychologists study the, um, the mechanisms behind human behavior and animal behavior uh, and perception and the mind. Um, and yet now we have the technology to look inside the living human brain using brain imaging, uh, to look at how the, the brain works, how, it, uh, how, how the structure of the brain differs between different people and in illness, and how the brain functions when you do all sorts of different things, like when you read or you feel or you taste or anything. That, that has become somehow, that has kind of gained a, um, a kind of credence and importance that superseded the importance of psychology. And I, I, it's a question as to why this is, but I think it might be because looking at the brain, it's almost like we're looking at something more sort of biological, more fixed maybe, or more real than just psychology. But of course we're not. It's exactly the same thing. Everything you feel and do and read and think is being done by your brain. The, the, this dichotomy is a kind of false dichotomy. Um, in the so one of one of my interests is uh, the implications of neuroscience for education, and actually one of the areas uh, that in that context that people like me work in is trying to um, focus on the kind of myths that surround neuroscience and how those myths are used and exploited in education. So there are all sorts of products that you can buy that schools can buy into uh, that supposedly like facilitate brain development and learning in children. So things like Brain Gym, you might have heard, heard of Brain Gym if you know any teachers. This is, a, this is a program which schools buy into. It's very mainstream. It's very expensive. It makes completely ludicrous claims about the brain. I mean, totally nonsensical, non-physiological uh, claims about the brain. So it says things like, if you... Um, stimulate brain buttons which are behind the ribs or in the neck you can uh, stimulate blood flow to the prefrontal cortex it oxygenates the prefrontal cortex which which makes your children better able to concentrate in class and it, all sorts of other things like that there are about five different points it, it does and all these different exercises that go with it uh, and teachers really like this they say but if we do i mean i work with a lot of teachers and they say but if we if we do these brain gym exercises before our before our class starts 
I know, I can tell you that my children do concentrate better. So, so it's true, it must be true. And something is true, but the question is what? And we have no idea, so it's probably... Because, because critically, the kind of randomised control trials on things like brain gym haven't been done. So it could be anything from, you know, the just novelty value, getting up for five minutes, a bit of exercise, doing something different, placebo effect, being told this is going to make you concentrate better, probably does make you concentrate a bit better. Um, and we, just, we don't know how it's working because the, the ex experiments haven't been done, but it's definitely not working by pressing brain buttons and increasing oxygen flow to the prefrontal cortex because that doesn't make any physiological sense. So, so those kinds of... Um, I mean, there are lots of other examples that we could give, like the Mozart effect and What's brain the training effect? and the Mozart effect. Oh, you go to, um, go to any... Well, they probably don't exist anymore, but record shops in America... Um, <clears throat> And you'll, all the classical music C CDs are stamped with a sticker saying, this will help your fetus's brain. <laughs> because the, because the, there was a piece of research about 15, 20 years ago showing that if you played uh, Babies in the Womb, Mozart, they had better educational entertainment later on in their lives than if you played them rock music. Now, that effect was, as you can imagine, front-page news, and it you know, made, it, made its stamp on all... Uh, Mozart and other classical music CDs across the states, uh, but it was not it was not replicated even by the same lab that originally found it. So th the now the, I've seen the guy who originally found this uh, th that finding give a talk on how he can't replicate it. It's not real, and yet it still pervades <laughs> this myth that you know, Mozart helps brain development. Um, oh, and there are all sorts of things. But I guess I guess the I guess the point is that. We can't just completely dismiss these things because, like I said, um, teachers really do like brain gym. So we can't just say, you've got to stop using it, it's a waste of money, which in some ways it is because it, it could pro you could probably do... The, the way it's working could probably be achieved by not buying into the programme but just figuring out what aspect of it is having an effect and doing that with your, with your class each day. Um, the point is, you know, getting to the kind of truth of the matter and finding out... Uh, what works and why, and what what really makes no sense at all, and sort of educating uh, educationers about about the brain and how how the brain learns and how the brain develops. You both, uh, in a sense, kind of identified the desire that people have for a narrative and an explanation, uh, and the easier and the quicker the explanation, the better. Um, let's move now um, uh, to the question of what it is that we think we can begin to say we do know. What are we finding out? What are we, if you like, I mean, I don't want to sound so excitable about, but what are we on the threshold of doing? Or what is it that we can say we do know that we didn't know five to ten years ago, apart from the, what the brain is made of? Uh, Ray? I'd say a few things. You know, one that many people might have heard about is the fact that there's always a story that you're given a certain endowment in terms of the number of brain cells you have, and that's what you're stuck with. But as I pointed out, each neuron has 10,000 connections. Those connections are actually not fixed. By the way, how do we know it's 10,000? Uh, because somebody has gone to the bother of counting them. Really? Yeah. I've gone, done a, 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 an approximation across many different instances. Yeah. So it is approximately 10,000. That is a, uh, not a disputed I won't number. hold you to 10,000. Okay. <laughs> but, um, so... As you learn something, those connections increase in specific areas of the brain for the thing you're learning about. So if I was learning how to play the violin and I worked as day and night 
a particular part of my somatosensory cortex that repre represents my fingers. What? Somatosensory cortex. Part of my brain that represents my fingers would grow in size. A better one is I decide I'm going to give up neuroscience and become a taxi driver. Now, a colleague of mine, Eleanor McGuire, uh, performed a study of taxi drivers who were acquiring the knowledge. Now, I guess all of you know about London taxi drivers. They have to know it off the top of their head. So it requires a very rich visuospatial representation of their environment. The part of the brain that maps space becomes enlarged. So we've learned an awful lot about the plasticity of the brain, not just the connections, but actually the structure of the brain changes with experience. What we also know, a standard view in the past would be that particular functions were represented in discrete areas of the brain. Now we know that actually a lot of higher functions depend upon interactions between multiple areas in the brain, and those interactions are modifiable by experience. Can I, can I just tell you that? Yeah. Because one of the models which is being continuously put out there is here's a bit of the brain and it's responsible for this, and here's another bit of the brain and it's responsible for that, yeah. as if they were sort of, and if you take out this bit, then this bit goes and so yeah. on. What you're suggesting is it's not like that. That is like that. a caricature. In some instances, there's some degree of truth, but for higher functions like decision making, um, probably like falling in love, it, there are multiple parts of the brain involved. And those connections are themselves plastic, they're kind of like a dynamic, uh, they can be altered by experience, and they, those connections are probably fundamental when it comes to understanding mental illness. Now we know that the strength of those connections is shaped by experience, but also shaped by particular substances that are secreted by the brain, substances like dopamine, which is deficient in Parkinson's disease. They're very important in strengthening or making uh, less strong connections. So the effects of drugs, which we may hear about in due course, exert their effects probably not through a direct effect of the drug, but by altering or modifying these connections. So that's something else we have learned. We're also beginning to learn, I, went, I mentioned at the beginning, what is the algorithmic, what is the mathematical program that's implemented in the brain when the brain is acquiring new information about the world. And that's a very big breakthrough because it is of a, um, a stature with discovering that a certain sequence of bases provided the basis for the genetic code. We have got the first semblance of an answer to that. We know for dopamine neurons what that algorithm is. Uh, once we generalize the rest of the brain, then we have got a mega breakthrough. So I think we know an awful lot. But we do not know as much. If I read a paper in Nature of Science, and I try to avoid putting this in when I have to submit a paper myself, you will often find at the very end, and of course these findings are of great relevance for finding treatments and cures for Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, etc. Um, that's an over-exaggeration. It peppers many, many scientific papers, but authors have this mythical view that by throwing that in, it'll help publication or it will feed into the well, idea... It'll help publication in my paper, sir. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else here? <laughs> um, so, uh, I think we know an incredible amount, but as I said, we have to be humble about it. Um, we're dealing with 
a, you know, it's a cliche, it is the most complicated uh, structure in the world. Um, we still haven't mapped its entire topography, um, but, you know, 50 years down the line, or 100 years down the line, at the rate of information growth at the present time, there'll be huge ramifications for neuroscientific knowledge, not only in terms of what we know, but how we use that. Oh, I want to come to the, yeah. the, the question of where it might go um, uh, a little bit later. Um, Sarah Jane, do you want to add anything to the question? I mean, because you've been, because you came to this through looking at schizophrenia and through the adolescent mind, which has been, uh, is there anything that you feel that, we're, we, that we know now that we simply didn't understand five, ten years ago? Yeah, I mean, actually, sadly, not very much with respect to schizophrenia. I don't think much has been, uh, you know, we're still, there's no ma major breakthroughs in terms of our understanding of uh, the brain and schizophrenia in the last 10 years. But in terms of brain development, I think there really has been, I mean, it's not that, it's not that we have a completely, uh, you know, a, a, a picture that's perfect, but we've discovered a great deal in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. So, so for example, if, if I say to you, when do you think the human brain stops developing? So when does it stop developing? I'm going to ask you to put up your hand. So either, I'm going to say either five years or seven years, 15, 18 or 30. So you've got five choices. So who, who thinks the human brain stops developing at age five or seven? Or did I say 15? <laughs> 18? Quite a few people think 18, 30? Okay, so it's kind of a trick question because actually, as Ray was hinting at earlier, it's not, the brain never really stops developing. It's, it's constantly changing, and that's a kind of... A changing brain is a baseline state throughout life. There's no age limit to brain plasticity. You can learn something new. You can learn a new word or recognise a new face at any age, and that's because something in your brain has changed. Um, but in terms of development, this kind of inevitable, very significant... Uh, amount of development in the in the cortex um, about until I reckon about 15 years ago if you'd asked that question even to um, a whole audience of neuroscientists I, I predict although I, know I didn't do the experiment 15 years ago but that a lot of people would say oh somewhere in kind of early mid childhood the, m the majority of the brain probably stops developing we now know that that's absolutely not the case and 15 years ago we didn't know we just didn't know about how the human brain develops because we didn't have the ability to, to scan the living human developing brain and track changes in, in structure, like the composition of the brain and how it functions across the lifespan. And now we do, and people all around the world have started to look at that, um, and they've started to scan children and adolescents and track brain development as they get older. Um, we now have a much more detailed picture about the changes that take place in the human brain throughout the lifespan and the, the kind of take-home message is that the brain continues to develop really significantly right throughout childhood and adolescence and it's even into the 20s and 30s in most of the cortex, which is the, which is the surface of the brain. Um, and I think that's kind of changed our view about... Uh, it's kind of changed how we think about, in particular, adolescents um, in terms of their you know, treatment by society and education, and it's starting to filter through. But, but on the other hand, as Ray's said, what we know is far outweighed by what we don't know. I mean, there, every time I give a talk about the adolescent brain, 90% of the questions I get about it afterwards, I have to say, oh, we have no idea. We don't know how, for example, 
culture influences brain development mm -hmm. because the studies haven't been done. This is such a young field, we have no idea how the environment really influences brain development or gender differences and all these other questions. Lucy, you've been very patient, um, uh, uh, but you got interested in this area, in its, uh, in, in its possibilities and so on. Uh, what would be useful, I think, for people who haven't seen the effect is if you could describe how you got interested in it and, and what happens in the play, um, sure. I think would be helpful. Sure. So I wrote, um, I wrote a play that was recently on at the National Theatre called The Effect. I became very interested in everything that these guys have been talking about with neuroscience and so on. And the more it appeared in... Uh, in journalism and in documentaries and all, yeah, all over papers as, as a sort of touchstone for people to prove that what they were saying was valid in some way became quite interesting to me and it felt quite similar to the ways in which people used to sort of talk about religion or I don't know like you know sort of by the biologicalization of things has seemed to become a sort of a, a, a godlike status um, in a strange way for us as a society, it feels that if you can prove that something is, you know, causing this and then doing that, that it somehow uh, becomes real in a way that it wasn't real when we were just supposing it was psychology. You know, oh, that's just people interacting, or oh, that's just how you feel. Oh, isn't that terribly kind of, you know, weak and unscientific and slightly female? And, you know, all of these things that you kind of go, oh, you know, that's, this is odd. Why, why, is, why is this biologicalization of, of, of mental illness as well, fundamentally, in the last 10 years, really importantly, but come to have this incredibly powerful, swaggering effect? So I was thinking about that and reading about that, and I did a lot of research into drug trials, clinical drug trials um, for drugs for uh, mental illness particularly. And I became very interested in seeing that antidepressants, most antidepressants now, work on the same sections, well, I say sections of the brain, work on the same neurotransmitters that falling in love uh, elicits in you. Um, Things like dopamine, that we've talked quite a lot about already, and Ray's mentioned, noradrenaline, and then later oxytocin. And they, 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 you know, you can, and serotonin also, which is, of course, famously been linked to depression, um, and, and quite erroneously often as well. Um, there's, absolutely, you know, there's hardly any provable link between decreased serotonin levels and depression, despite 10 years of marketing to that effect. So all of those things are quite, when you actually look into it, quite uh, disturbing and interesting and I decided I wanted to write a play set over the course of a clinical drugs trial for a new antidepressant um, in which two of the trialists um, fell in love and yet they wouldn't be able to work out whether or not what they were experiencing was a response to each other and meeting each other or a direct drug effect and that their love was in some way a side effect of what they were taking and then it turns out, halfway through the... Which is closed now, so I don't mind spoiling it. It's, um, one of them's on a placebo. So it sort of tries to explore that notion narratively of how do you know what's real when it comes to love, when it comes to the way that you feel? What does it even mean to describe something as real? Because essentially, mm. if you love somebody and it's drug-induced, does it make any difference? Does it matter? In the same way that if you meet someone and they've been on antidepressants for a large section of their life and they may, be, they may behave differently as a result of that and you fall in love and marry them, it doesn't mean you don't love them, does it? You know, they are not a 
if you didn't know them before. So or, trying to raise all of those questions of how malleable personality is, how malleable how we feel about other people is, and is there really any divide at all between the psychological and the physical, like we try and pretend? Or are they simply or just a, an extension of each other, wrapped up around each other and inseparable? Uh, the, you've introduced me to a completely new word, uh, which I'm not even sure I can say. Can you say it again? What word is it? Biological... Biologicalisation. Biologicalisation. I don't know if it is a word, but... I, I, I'm going yeah. to ask Ray and Sarah Jane if they, if they recognise the notion of biologicalisation. In other words, I mean, you can see... There is an... This is, the, this is essentially an argument about... Uh, it has two stages, really. One of which is... Is it possible or likely that we will be able to separate uh, or f actually discover the physical cause of all our emotional and psychological states. And the second question which arises from that is, wouldn't it be a fucker if we did? <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, I can't think of a, another way of putting that. So how, how do you react to that? Yeah. Well, you know, if, if, if you're sort of coming from a... Um, point of view of a materialist, um, then uh, one view is that everything in the world, um, everything to do with you, given that you're made up of the material of the world, uh, all the experience that is consequent upon that must have a physical explanation. Now, I think that's slightly different than saying it has a physical cause. Um, because we, of course, when it comes back to the idea of the self, we're embedded not just in, in, in a, a physical environment, we're embedded in a social environment. And, you know, the issue then becomes, well, when you fall in love because you're on a... Um, is that because you're on the drug? But if you hadn't met the person you fell in love with when you're on the drug, would you have fallen in love with somebody else? I suspect not. Um, so I think there, there's always that sort of social uh, context. So cause, I think you have to think about proximal and sort of ultimate causes, which people do in terms of, of evolution. But at some point, you know, there is a physical correlate of every possible psychological state you're in. Um, the interesting question for your play would be the person that's fell in love um, and the question is, was it because they were on the drug? And if they were in love and we could image love, for example, we could get a complete readout of a brain in love, would it be any different? And if it wasn't any different, well, is, is there any dif difference? Now, some people might say, well, there is a difference. They were on a drug and therefore it's, um, it's not really a, a real, real love. Well, they'd, say, they'd, say, they'd, say, they'd give you the Lance Armstrong uh, uh, parallel, wouldn't they? Yeah which is essentially love on a drug, is like winning the Tour de France with yeah. extra... Uh... And, and he can buy that, but of course the public can't. We want our, yes. our, our Tour de France winners to be the sort of, you know... To be pure. Like to be pure. To be pure. And we want our love to be pure. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think one has to be careful with the kind of line of argument that goes... Uh, when you're in love, uh, your insula lights up and your orbital frontal cortex lights up. And, and let's supposing then that I found somebody who was, um, want, wanted to marry one of my children and I suspected they didn't really love them. Could I put them in a scanner and say, yeah. well, you're out, mate. So it ain't true love. Uh, 
Your, atten your intentions were honourable, yeah, but your neurons yeah, were yeah. firing. <laughs> so who, who would you believe? Well, in that world, we, in that world, we might well end up with um, people being able to kind of bring their own brain scans to divorce courts to show, to yeah. prove that you know I don't need to argue on the basis of infidelity or yeah. you know unreasonable behaviour. Look, it's li it's there right in front of you. I don't love them anymore. It's clear. And that kind of that kind of solidifying and physicalising of human experience, which we've seen being incredibly useful and um, humanizing in talking about things like depression and so on where it's very important that we've gone through a period of being able to say it's a disease it has a biological you know um, cause and all of those sorts of things that for many years you know led to a great stigmatizing of mental illness but if we're prepared to do that with feelings of great despair and experiences of great sorrow we have to be prepared that we might well come to a point where we do that with other things that we hold slightly more sacred for some reason like our, our feelings of um you know love and hope and family i think we also uh, since you raised the point there's a huge desire for a biologicalization i mean if you look at the argument about chronic fatigue syndrome and mm -hmm. and or, or stroke me the desire uh, for, on the part of many sufferers, absolute desire for there to be found a straightforward physiological cause is almost, you know, it's, it's palpable, it's and more it, than palpable. Yeah, it comes down to this idea about it being real as well, so that they can say, look, I'm not making it up. It's not false in some way. You can't look at me and say I'm a, you know, I'm a liar or I'm just lazy or all these other things that you might want to, put, you know, to, to say about it. I have a disease and it's called chronic fatigue syndrome. And that's incredibly important for people to feel validated. Um, um, yeah, in exactly the same... But w w what's, what's funny is that the reverse is true if you talk about something like romantic love, whereby if you were to somehow sort of create it chemically, people would then say it was false. So we have this very odd kind of binary reaction to what we, what we believe is science and what we believe is something other and something more mystical and romantic, like an arts degree, you know, and we kind of judge them very, very differently. Well, the things that we've talked about, the creativity, mm -hmm. the notion of the yeah. wellsprings of creativity, <laughs> or, or likewise... What we like to think of as, or we don't like to think of as, parental small elements of parental influence. If your parent, your mother did this, or your father was in, in this kind of way, search it down, not to the cause, but to the explanation. And at some point, I must find out what the difference between a cause and an explanation is when you get right away down to it, uh, and so on. Then, in that case, if you can biologicalize it, it also suggests that you could remedy the thing that had been socially caused or parentally caused by flicking whichever switch it was you needed in order to remedy it. I mean, Sarah, what, Sarah what do you think of that? I mean, first of all, I think... I mean, we know we're a long way away from it. Though. Yeah, we are a long way away from it. Although, you know, we joke about things like uh, brain scans to see if you, you've committed adultery or are in love or whatever, but they already happen. So I got a... Um, I got an email from someone in Channel 4 wanting to know about... Uh, they wanted to make some programme about this marriage guidance uh, company in the States that uses brain scans to try and help people figure out their... their resolve their, their problems in their marriage. So they, bra they brain scan them and they, they figure out, you know, whether they're lying to each other, apparently, or whether they're still in love and all... I mean, this is completely ridiculous. It's like tossing a coin. It, it just... It has no validity, giving someone a scan one single person a scan and try, trying to figure out whether they're lying or not, although there are also lots of different lie detector companies in the States that do just that. Um, so it's not something that is that far off. Uh, it's, it's already happening. I've also seen um, uh, 
neuromarketing companies that will, they, they argue that, you know, in 10 years' time, we'll no longer need to look at people's CVs. We'll just have to look at their brain scan and figure out whether, they want, whether we want them to come and work for us or not. So the, these are not things that are sort of jokes and the parables that might happen in 20 years' time. It's, all, it's already happening. Um, and I think, you know, part of it is that, well, you can use brain scans and you can get nice pretty pictures and that these are quite seductive, these pictures mm. of brain scans. You've all seen them in newspapers and, uh, you know, in neuroscience we see them every day. Um, and and there's there there quite a lot of research showing that people are kind of seduced by these brain images for the exact reason that we've been talking about, this sort of biologicalization of something. So... Um, if you, so the experiments tend to go like, if you, if you give people some kind of explanation uh, or you give them some phenomenon and you, you ask them uh, which explanation they, they prefer to explain some phenomenon, if the explanation has random brain words in it, like prefrontal cortex or um, the occipital lobe or something, they prefer those explanations, even though the addition of those brain words adds nothing to the, to the explanatory power. But it's like this seductive allure of random neuroscience words, or, and it especially works for pictures of blobs on the brain, like pretty you know, yellow and red bits of the brain lighting up. And I think it's something, it's not just um, neuroscience, actually. I think we're all seduced a bit by science that we don't really understand. So I, I'm much more likely to buy a bottle of shampoo if it has all sorts of words that I don't really understand, but I think that might be really good for my hair. Uh, we, we, I think we're seduced by especially science that we don't really understand. Um, and again, it's, it's partly the sort of biological, biologicalization. I've never used that yeah. word, but I probably will now. But, isn't it, it's, but it's also is an implication that there's other humans out there who, who are in control and know more than you do about mm. the thing, yeah. which is really, really comforting, this notion that it can be, whatever the problem is, can be solved by somebody out there, whether the problem is that I've got terrible mental illness or my hair is lank. You know, it's some, you know, it had completely different ends of the spectrum where you can go... Science gives us a really comforting feeling that as human beings, ourselves, we have the potential to solve our own problems rather than looking to a god or looking to, um, or, or, or looking to a religion. It allows us a space where we feel like we're capable of, of, of great things. And so we automatically sort of want to rely on it. And if somebody says, your brain... You know, you do this. If I get told you do this because there is a part of your brain that want, you know, that that that, you know, lights up and makes you do that. I th it's almost like a horoscope. It's ridiculous. You almost you almost kind of think, oh yeah, of course that's. I'm a Scorpio. Of course that's why I do that. You know, yes, I have an amygdala that is overactive. Of course that's why I'm like that. And and it's a and it allows you a certain a certain relaxation of responsibility towards yourself in a strange way, even though what you're talking about is yourself. I'm bound to say that I mean some of the. Some of the most um, problematic recent discussions of neuroscience actually have come from within the discipline itself. I mean, uh, the biggest in the course of the last week, which I've heard yet again, is the idea that because the brain is plastic at an adolescent stage, therefore what we're doing with our young people with computers and uh, social sites is bound, is effectively, is what is being said, is bound to be damaging. Bound to be damaging. It's you know there, there's the playing or plastic brain plasticky away etc. And there are these people so on the, on their video games etc. And they effectively the effect of them is malign in some kind of way. And this is coming from professors of neuroscience. 
React, please. One professor of neuroscience. <laughs> One professor of neuroscience. In, in particular. One um, influential, constantly broadcasting <laughs> professor of neuroscience. You said it. Um, the, the, the answer is we don't know. Um, it may be great for their brains. Um, you know, they're able to do that while watching TV and having a conversation and eating their dinner at the same time. Multitasking. Um, you know, simply don't know. I, I wouldn't say we have any knowledge whether it's good or bad. The only thing that might be bad can about it... Can we just it, mark that for a moment? Yeah. Let's just mark that. Every journalist in the room, we have no knowledge at the moment about whether it is good or bad. Yeah. That's the fact. Yeah. All that story stuff amounts to that statement there, yeah. by the way. And, you know, the only way it might be bad is because it's quite enjoyable and a kid might decide, you know, when you think it's up... The kid is in the room doing the homework. It's actually up there playing its game. Now, that's not that's that's just bad in the context of it not doing its schoolwork. But whether the activity itself is bad, I don't know. I think it's probably very good compared to what I had to do when I was uh, growing up. I didn't, you know, I lived in a village where there was no library, and I was bored out of my head. Um, I, you now. <laughs> <laughs> I boredom, had to. Boredom is good for you. No? Because <laughs> I had to engage in a lot of neuro imagery. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know the distinction. Sarah Jane, would you like to add anything to this? this yeah, point? I mean, I think we, we, it's right. We don't know. We don't have the evidence. The studies haven't been done. The studies looking at how playing video games and using Facebook all the time influence the development of the human brain have not been done, so we don't know. What we do know is there's um, some, a very nice series of studies by a neuroscientist in the States called Daphne Bevelier uh, looking at how video games influence um, cognition and perception and the adult brain. So this is just in adults. And, and the, so she publishes a lot of high-profile, very high-quality work, and time and time again what she finds is that playing video games improves all sorts of cognitive functions like divided, dividing your attention between things on the screen, multitasking, working memory, keeping things in mind, uh, and, and manipulating information inside your head, visual acuity. Um, so actually, all the really good research that out there, there's not very much of it, mostly coming from her lab, suggests that playing video games isn't particularly bad for your brain. In fact, it kind of trains some parts of your, uh, of your brain. But as Ray said, the problem, I think, for... Um, Firstly, that those equivalent studies haven't been done on the developing brain, but also one of the issues is the time that children might be spending in uh, you know, social interaction and homework might now be taken up with playing video games, and we're not sure how that influences, for example, their social brains. OK, let's do the throw forward before we open up for, for questions. Um, 20, 30, where, where should we take a, a, a useful time frame from now, by which time... So we say 30 years. 30 years. So, OK, 30 years from now, um, by my quick arithmetic, that's 2043. Um, all kinds of funny brain cells work that well, and synaptic... You know, actually, that is, that's the area that's most subject to synaptic pruning, in my case. Um, 2043, roughly, where do you think we'll be? In terms of what neuroscience will be presenting, yeah. I think we will have answered... Uh, which will be a huge leap, the issue of what is the sort of algorithm that's been implemented in the brain. So that's in terms of basic neuroscientific knowledge. Um, 
I think in terms of the technologies that will be around, we will have mature technologies which are already here, such as deep brain stimulation, which is used for treatment of patients with movement disorder, Parkinson's disease, even psychiatric disorders. People are doing deep brain stimulation. But it's rather crude. Well, what is that? So this is where you know that, for example, a abnormal activity in the brain is generating a tremor, say, in somebody with Parkinson's disease, a very disabling tremor that's no longer susceptible to drugs. You put in a probe deep through the substance of the brain to a particular structure <coughs> called the subthalamic nucleus, and then you have a wire attached, almost like a cardiac pacemaker. You bury a battery under the skin, and you can tune that externally to deliver a stimulus to the brain. That's called deep brain stimulation. It's invasive, but some patients, you know, some very high-profile patients um, who've had it says that it's made their life bearable. Uh, a lot of patients want it. Now, that's very crude. You have to have a procedure done your brain. But it's likely, I think, that we will be able to put on something akin to a cycling helmet, which will deliver stereotactically, in other words, in perfect coordinates, three-dimensional space, little magnetic pulses to any part of the brain. Now let's imagine, and that, that technology is being developed rapidly, let's imagine you could do that. You will then have issues that um, we know that certain parts of the brain, if you stimulate them, induce intense feelings of pleasure, and dare I say, love. Um, you can put on this helmet and have this experience. It's one of those in a Woody Allen film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, there's going to be the ethical issue. Well, is, is, the, is that going to be better than going to church on Sunday? Um, Sounds like um, yeah. <laughs> or, Unless know, they have one in the church. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so I think we'll be faced with, with issues about how do you regulate these, these things? Are they good? Are they bad? Who's making that call? Is it the state? What's bad about them? And in fact, it probably, I suspect, supersedes drugs because you know drugs act by you know stimulating neurons. Now you can do it directly, um, etc. So I think we'll be faced with huge ethical dilemmas around technologies that will be developed initially for medical purposes, but are susceptible to exploitation by gaming industry, porn industry, you name it. Um, there'll be big issues. Oh, never mind the porn. Who's going to need that? Are they going to try and subvert it or go get rid of it? Um, Sarah Jane. Um, yeah, I mean, if you think about so 30 years, if you think about 30 years ago and how technology has just completely, you know, revolutionised how we live our lives in the last 30 years, even the last 10 years, it's, I think it's actually impossible to predict what technologies will be around in 30 years' time. But certainly the way, uh, in terms of neuroscience, the way um, one of the kind of goals of developmental neuroscience that is looking at um, how the brain develops and, and the brain in, uh, in, in kids with developmental disorders like autism and dyslexia is that ultimately, kind of one of the ultimate goals is that these things will be, and also um, psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and depression, that ultimately these things will be able to be diagnosed with a with a, some kind of biological test. At the moment, all of those disorders I've just mentioned aren't. They're diagnosed by basically observation or interview, which is very subjective and you know, flawed uh, and 
and not ideal. So ultimately, we, we'd like some kind of blood test or genetic test or brain scan to be able to diagnose whether a child has autism or not or whether they have dyslexia or depression or whatever it might be. Um, and maybe, I mean, at the moment, there is no, we're nowhere near that. Would you agree? We're nowhere near that at the moment. Whatever you read, we're not close to that. But maybe in 30 years' time, we will be. And what will limit, what will limit it, so what will limit the, um, the ability to go and give people diagnostic brain scans is cost, because brain scans are really expensive, and I, I don't think the price is going to come down dramatically. Lucy, does any of that give you hope or fear? Um, I'm, I, it gives me quite a lot of hope, generally, actually. I mean, I, I, sort of, I wonder if it'll go the other way, personally. I wonder if it, it, it's a little bit, um, you know, that the pendulum kind of swings. And I think we've spent so long now being so uh, about our interiors, you know, thinking so hard about, well, the brain, you know, is, the brain is working like this and that's producing this effect in me that then sort of goes out into the external world. I wonder if, I wonder if there won't be biomarkers for many of these mental illnesses, however hard we look. And then I wonder that might turn us outside ourselves again a little bit, so that these technologies that you, you know Ray's been talking about and some we, we we might you know and these reports where people say oh Facebook's you know destroying people and you know those sorts of things, but I think we're going to look more and more outside ourselves again for social political causes of uh, any of, of of things that we feel inside and and, the, and effects that they're having on our brains. And so I suspect that the pendulum might swing in that direction again, for better and for worse, with both hope and fear of people kind of, you know, blaming society, but also maybe changing society to make it better. Thanks for that. OK, it's your turn. Um, if I could see where the mics are. Uh, and I also see a fairly large number of um, uh, uh, Jenny got her hand up extremely quickly. I mean, so quickly. It was up before I asked. Um, and can I just see where the other... Yeah, if, I'm, actually, you know what, microphone, people with microphones, I'm going to leave it to you. OK, you just, you just choose. You take the obloquy. Yeah, there it goes. Uh, anyway, Jenny. Hello, Jenny Rossler, journalist. I want to ask you a bit more about brain development, both um, professionally and personally. Um, a couple of years ago, I read James Heckman's work, the Nobel Prize-winning economist in Chicago. And as you'll know, he argues that there are basically just two periods um, in anyone's life when you're capable of learning. One is, I think, up to the age of seven, and the other is when the brain does another brain spurt in adolescence. And his argument is that you can only train people to learn in those periods. And basically, after that, if they haven't learnt how to learn, they aren't available for retraining. So all the political stuff we do later on about retraining adults who haven't had a chance is basically, he argues, politically cosmetic, but actually, in practical terms, useless. Much better to take someone who's already accomplished something and retrain them. And as part of that, um, you say that the brain keeps developing. I, as an adult, am trying slowly, painfully to learn the piano. And I want to know, are there any quick routes to this? Because it's so damn slow. That's what I call exploiting a Q&A session. <laughs> um, yeah, so Heckman is an economist and modelled um, the added value of investment early on in life versus so that it mostly for um, children who come from very deprived backgrounds. And his model suggested that investment early on had much more added value throughout the lifespan than later investments. But the and, and that and that's you know there's no, you can't really argue with that. The but the only the point that 
uh, don't quite come out of that is that firstly investment has to be sustained so it's not that you can just invest early on and then forget about it that's not going to have the sustained added value but also it also uh, neglects the, pe the children who kind of slip through the net so what about kids who don't get that extra early investment you know of um, whom there are many um, is it too, it kind of implies that later is just too late and that's that there's no real solid grounds for that argument it's not that you know if, if a child slips through the net and doesn't get early investment then by adolescence oh well it's too late there's nothing you can do there's no reason at least from the neuroscience to think that that should be the case the brain is still developing and still has um, uh, plasticity so it shouldn't be too late to invest I think that's probably my my answer the piano playing I, 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 who knows I mean I guess you know the one of the things that it's a very um, complicated thing to think about like how why is it the children seem to um, learn things much faster than adults it might be that their brain is more plastic in fact probably a lot of a lot of it is that that their brain is just much more plastic than ours. They've got all these synapses that haven't been pruned yet, <laughs> which I haven't <laughs> talked about, but just, yeah. Um, and, but it's also probably the, you know, the number of hours that they put into practicing and the, the mind focus that they put on learning new things that maybe as adults with our crazy chaotic lives, we just don't let ourselves do. Just on Alan Musbridger, of course, just recently wrote a book about this. Yes, but he was yeah, that's, that's what he does not point out, of course. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't point it out. No, he's slightly disguised. Okay. Um, well, mine's a very quick one, actually. Um, I, 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 was in, I was attracted to what Lucy was saying about what's real anyway and pushed it back to you, Sarah-Jane, on the brain gym about which you were most dismissive. Mm -hmm. What does it matter if it works? It doesn't matter, and I think I want—I sort of wanted to imply that it doesn't. If it works, excellent. What is not good is that it's costing schools a lot of money to buy this program, even though they don't probably need the program. Although the program will try to argue that they need it, but they probably don't need it. They could probably just do it, stand up at the beginning of class, do a few exercises, tell the kids this is going to help them concentrate. So it's partly about money, and it's partly about sort of truth. You know, there's a complete myth that you have any kind of buttons whatever in your body that directly increase blood flow to the prefrontal cortex that's truth so it's partly about making sure that we you know we get the truth out there well, i don't Thank know you. where we've got to but whoever's got one go not a button that is that goes yeah. there, yeah. And nigel cameron from washington dc in fact one of the first experiences i had in washington was 20 years ago when fred goodwin who then just stood, has stood down as director of the national institute for mental health led a project called Neuroscience and the Human Spirit. And I was pulled into this for some reason and hung around with these smart people. He never quite got the book out that was meant to come out of this, so no one else knows. And the concern was reductionism, because back then we were getting all of these covers in Time and Newsweek with early scans and so on and so forth. This made you do that. And there was concern generally with the reductionist implications of this for human behavior, and specifically, of course, with jurisprudence. And the notion that the McNaughton defense, you know, which basically is a standard English law approach to how you can claim you know, criminal irresponsibility, um, would become generalized. And of course, it's a big issue in every US state has a different approach to McNaughton defense. But what's interesting to me looking at this now is this is 20 years later. And I don't think people are worried about that. And we've had 20 years of, the, of these you know, pretty pictures with the false colors and so on on the covers of these news magazines. 
And it doesn't seem to me it's really had much effect on how we think about ourselves as responsible moral agents. But I'd love a comment, not least perhaps from Lucy Preble, whose play I have to confess I have not seen, not yet seen, um, as to how, how we think as we move increasingly, obviously, up the path of being able to make correlations of some kind, this is going to have an effect on, on our capacity to make, to make moral choices. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a huge question, but a fascinating one. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the more you know about yourself, the more difficult it can be sometimes to make decisions. I mean, I'm, well, that's quite an odd thing to say, but... but in my experience, the more I, I went from a position of relative ignorance about neuroscience and uh, psychology to doing a lot, a lot of research into it to, to write a play. And what's quite interesting about doing it in that way, rather than having you know, the sort of long-term, I'm sure, very deep educations that both of the, my other members of the panel had about neuroscience, is that, is that I, I realised things about myself and my behaviour very quickly that were to do with things that are being explained to me neuroscientifically. And one thing it, it has done, strangely, actually, is destabilise my sense of um, autonomy and free will, which is good. <laughs> but that, I'm, good, I'm just being really honest. Believe. Yeah, well, it's, it's, if, you, if, you, if you study, you know, enough of the, you know, the, what, what, what Ray's talking about, particularly about the, sort of the software, almost, that your brain is running... Um, and, and how it's running it, it becomes quite difficult to invest in your own actions in a way that you believe that you're responsible for them rather than something else that's controlling you. For, for example, the more you learn about things like cognitive dissonance and the fact that all of us, all of us will more easily remember and believe things that already support mm. things that we already think are true. You know, so you're, you know, if, if, if someone gives you an argument um, against something that you already believe, you will forget it much more quickly than if someone gives you an argument um, supporting it. Once you know that about yourself, you can, yes, counter it a little bit. You can be kind of try and be aware when that's happening. But you also can't beat it. You can't in some way be more, sort of get one over on your own brain. There's no separation between the two. I don't, I just don't believe that, by the way. You don't believe that's no, the case? No, no, no. I, 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 oh, you don't believe the theory? I think, I think you're halfway there once you know it. <laughs> but then, but, but that's just... the optimistic view. But anyway, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm the chairman. I'm not... I'm yeah. Not... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you've got special skills. But the more you know about those sorts of things... The more, the, more, the more actually faintly paralysing it can be. And I say that not wishing to be despairing, but kind of a, gr a greater understanding of things is, is incredibly wonderful and important, but also quite scary to the delusion that you build up around how you actually make decisions. Sorry. <laughs> so, yes, there was somebody at yes. the back. Oh, three, you've got three, it. three quick questions. One is, um, I'd be interested in Ray's take on the results I've seen coming out of Brussels that people that are supposedly brain dead are able to say yes or no when posed certain sort of questions. And, um, the second is by 2043 when um, scanning will be, let's say, uh, 50 million times more powerful than currently if Moore's law carries on applying, um, do you think we'll begin to get an understanding of animal communication and knowledge? And thirdly, uh, when do you think we'll have cures or at least be able to arrest Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and dementia? Whoa! We have four minutes and we've got okay. one more question again. How are we going to do this? Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Well, I started the last question. It's the one I, I remember. Um, I'm Parkinson's. I, I think we'll be lucky if, if we're there in 50 years' time. Um, I really do. Um, now, 
um, that's a terrible thing, you know, for all of us in the room. Perhaps uh, it may be too late. Um, and again, there's incredible hype around us uh, and people who corner the market in the sort of research and money always overhype things. Um, I, I, I really think there's no neurological disease whereby there's been a new intervention, as far as I can think of the top of my head, f since actually L-DOPA for Parkinson's disease. Uh, and that's only sort of a temporary respite. So we're talking now about 50 years. If we take mental illness, there's been no new drug. Uh, there's been repackaging left, right and center for, you know, um, for the last 50 years. So I th think it would be a big call to say we will have solved the problem in 50 years' time when we've made no progress therapeutically in 50 years. So what was the second question? Animals. When are we alive and dead? What's consciousness? And do you yeah. Yeah, you're sort of, you're, I think you're referring to evidence that people who have, who are not able to communicate because they've had neurological disorders, are they sentient? Are they aware of their environment? Is it just a matter of that they cannot sort of express the sort of fact that they are sentient? And there have been a number of studies which have shown that actually by decoding the brain, by using algorithms that can read out activity that seems to suggest that they do understand and have sentience. Um, I mean, that's there now. I think it's, again, a little bit hyped. Uh, and the, the, those studies have been criticized. But I think in 20 years' time, there's no doubt we will have, for those tragedies, very good technology that will be more reliable than anything that's around at the moment. I, I, undoubtedly, because we'll be able to generalize, sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're not that different than uh, chimpanzees or orangutans. Uh, we know, you know, for my mind, they do have emotions and very profound emotions. And I think that will, again, have major ethical implications for the type of research that we do. On the other hand, I think that with the development of science, the need necessarily to do invasive research in higher primates will probably be rendered obsolete by other models. I'm going to take one last question. You've been talking about biologicalization, um, which I, I think of as biological determinism kind of more broadly. And it's something that but we encounter in, in lots of ways, not just with cognitive neuroscience. But I mean, I, I keep reading recently that um, young girls are hardwired to like pink. And funnily enough, the people who are, who are telling me that young girls are hardwired to like pink are selling young girls things that are pink. Um, it's a very strange coincidence there. Um, now this goes to Sarah Jane's point, of course, about the, the is it brain gym? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, as you say, the same, the same process there, um, that, that people are selling us stuff. So it seems to me that, that part of the thing here about biological determinism is that, and, and pseudoscience, which is the other thing I would say, again, this is an old, you know, pseudoscience has been around for a very long time. Phrenology, um, you know, was always trying to do that mind mapping as well, right? And, uh, and trepanning was doing the same thing, right? Um, so the, uh, and, and for me then, it, it does come back to the, to the point that Lucy was making about, uh, about free will and choice. And that's what I found myself thinking about all the way through this. Um, that that is what we have to come 
come back to and that the people who want to believe in biological determinism are precisely the people who don't want us to be making choices, who don't want us to be thinking, who want us to say, to say, yeah, I'm hardwired to buy the thing that you're selling me without actually having to think about whether I am. And the thing that I take the most heart from is um, uh, Professor Dolan's point that, that the brain keeps developing and it keeps changing and that therefore that none of this is fixed then and that we can keep moving and taking it forward and finding the truth in the way that Sarah Jane was saying. I end on a peroration, I apologize. Can I add just one wrinkle to that as a, uh, of, for your final comments, which is one of the things that is clear but incredibly difficult to isolate is the fact that we are social animals. And therefore our responses are, and, the, and this famous plasticity, is incredibly influenced in some sort of way by our interaction. By the simple fact that we live in otherwise we would be the same as we were, and we probably, in many ways, we're not. Uh, and so on. So maybe if we could talk about both those elements together as we kind of come to some concluding comments, um, would be good. And if you, can't, if you can't do that, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go, Sarah Jane? Well, the question of free will. So um, someone asked about ju uh, jurisprudence and the law and what, this, what the implications for that is. And, um, I mean, brain, brain scans are already being used in courts of law, especially in the US, uh, to, by defence lawyers, for example, to show that the prefrontal cortex isn't activating in a normal way. Uh, and again, like I said earlier, these you know, single-subject brain scans are pretty meaningless at the moment. Maybe in 20 or 30 years' time they will tell us something, but at the moment they're not really very reliable. Um, but they're already being used quite routinely. <coughs> routinely. Um, also, in the context of adolescent brains, things like the age of criminal responsibility, which in this country is 10, um, and also in the States, the fact that you can put minors in jail for the rest of their lives without the possibility of parole. These are all things that are being um, constantly talked about, but now neuroscience is being brought into that argument. Whether you know, it should be or not is, a, is questionable, is debatable. Um, but one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with a kind of facetious comment, which is I was once asked by a journalist, so do you think that this research shows that um, adolescents don't have free will? And I said, well, we already know that adults don't have free will <laughs> 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 from decades of psychology research. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think you make a really, really good and strong point, what you were saying about the... Um, the interlocking of who's selling what and what they're asking you to believe is neurologically true. Um, I think it's worth pointing out in a more general way to try and divorce that from capitalism slightly, that one of the things I was, became very interested in when I was reading about this is that, yes, that most, most of the people doing research into, into drugs anyway, because um, I was looking at clinical trials, and most people who are doing research into drugs are the people who are developing drugs to go on to sell them. So there is going to, you know, rather than a sort of, you know, not even a cackling sort of Machiavellian perspective behind that, but, but they have, even unbeknownst to them, a very, very strong incentive to bring about certain results. And one thing that's really worth remembering about science generally is that it's only human brains looking at other human brains, which I say, I say only, not to be disparaged about it, it's also amazingly so. But we mustn't think that scientists are a different breed of people who don't get depressed or fall in love or desperately want their results to be published, and even when they're not quite good enough. And there's go, you know, for every bias and ignorance and doubt we have about ourselves, science has all of that because science is just us looking at ourselves. 
So the more aware you can become of that without you know, losing yourself in a ridiculous meta-universe, the more accurate science will be and the more profound what we learn from it can be, I think. Right. So I'll just pick up on one aspect. You talk about pink girls selling. I think the one area we didn't touch on here, but I just wonder, this is a very useful place to make that point, is that we're sold lots of other things too. We're sold categories of mental illness by uh, ICD-10, DSM-5, ah. which is serving in terms of the pharmaceutical industry because they like things nicely packaged because they can sell vast amounts of drugs. Now they've abandoned the field because they've made sort of no progress. I think, you know, Brian Field, playwright, uh, in uh, the play was translations, said a culture can be caught within a linguistic contour. But I think a science, and we as people who under, uh, talk about mental illness, are caught within a contour that's created by these descriptive categories. So we still talk about, well, have you found the cure for schizophrenia? But schizophrenia is a concept that's 120 years old. Are we saying that that concept thought up by a German phenomenologist is really the way you could parse up mental illness? So I think we need to shake ourselves free of lots of shackles. And I'm just glad that I have the moment to say that one of the shackles that we're about, that we're handicapped with, is the categorization of mental illness. And we have to get free of that if we're going to make any progress. The last thing about in terms of biological determinants goes back to something Lucy said. It's very useful in certain instances. I think it is useful for those to have that perspective for people who suffer with mental illness, because you must free them of the claim that's often made implicitly that they're responsible for feeling miserable, etc. Okay, can I just thank this panel for being a fantastic panel. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>